today with the uh, last third of the qualities that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for church leaders. And the list of qualities is long and can't be absorbed in any one sitting. So, uh, as I said, this is the third uh, shot at this list. And our premise is that the, the list, even though it's designated for leaders, is really for all men in their leadership roles uh, and much of it for all believers. Uh, you probably, if you look at the long list, have done pretty well with a lot of them, but few, if any of us, have mastered all of these qualities. So I want to encourage you not to just say, this is a laundry list and I can sit here, but rather consider that you or I may have weaknesses in some of these and see what you might do to address that. So uh, let's get started. The first one that we're going to deal with, this is at the latter half, is free from the love of money. The Bible has a lot to say about money, and that shouldn't surprise us. This money is really as close as you can get to a basic necessity like food, shelter, and clothing. Uh, it is what we use to acquire those basic necessities, and it's how we help others. But it's also a motivation for much of the evil in the world. It literally touches every aspect of our lives, and it's a topic that is extremely wide-ranging. However, what we must remember is that it is futile to place our ultimate security in money or possessions. Of course, Jesus addressed this whole issue of material and financial treasure in the Sermon on the Mount. And he cautioned against laying up treasures on earth because eventually, at some point, those material possessions will be consumed by moth, rust, or thieves. And even if we hang on to some of them and avoid some scams or the government confiscation or thieves, eventually all of our stuff is going to end up in the landfill. Uh, now, there's a story that's gone around for years about a very wealthy man. I'm not sure whether it was Howard Hughes or whomever, but this individual was confronted uh, by somebody who said, you know, when you die, you simply can't take it with you. And then his response was, well, then I just won't go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, even those basic needs like food and clothing we should not be anxious about those things. Yeah, Bible makes clear that we are to work, to be productive, and provide for our own. However, our focus and our security cannot be found in money, but in seeking God's kingdom first, and He will meet our needs. You know, we are not to lay up treasures on earth. Rather, the only lasting treasures are those that we lay up in heaven. Jesus reminds us where our treasure is, there is where our heart will be also. This does not mean that all Christians will be rich, as it may be better for you or me to struggle financially. God has the big picture, we do not. We talked about this in Sunday school, and Bill Bider brought up the whole aspect of discipline. You know, God disciplines those he loves, and sometimes that's financially. Let me ask. Is money evil? 
or a necessary evil. The Bible says clearly neither. Rather, the real evil is the love of money. Paul tells us that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs in 1 Timothy 6. So earning, spending, and saving money is not evil. Rather, it's the development of a lifestyle, the main purpose of which is to seek after money for ultimate security. That is the pit into which many, if not most in our culture, have fallen. Uh, not all the wealthy fall into that pit, but many do. In, in the Bible, there's the example of the rich young ruler who's asked, who asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And his final answer was, well, just sell all your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor, and follow me. And he walked away sadly because his possessions, his stuff, his money was more important to him than eternal life. And this is not a new problem. Moses warned God's people not to forget God's blessing when they possessed the promised land. The book of Judges records that later there arose another generation after Israel who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served idols, abandoned the Lord who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods and they provoked the Lord to anger who gave them over to plunderers. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Now, Instead, the author of Hebrews reminds us that where our security lies, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We should learn from Israel. God's material blessings can, if we forget him, become a curse. And throughout history, mankind has accumulated wealth to the point that it becomes the goal of life rather than a means to a godly end. Money is not only a status symbol, it somehow talks and loudly. Perhaps you have seen the billboard around town uh, of the attorneys who promise to get you more money, more money, more money. Okay? Uh, and uh, you know that when you got money, you got lots of friends hanging around your door. Uh, that's kind of the situation that the prodigal son had. This is especially true for people who were poor when young. The culture often says that you're not really very important if you don't have a lot of money. And this, is cause, this causes not just an obsession to earn more, but it can be the ruin of many a poor boy when they realize that only money can, can be obtained by the illicit sale of drugs or even more so by the reusable goods of human trafficking. However, parents, we need to be careful in this area to avoid the extremes. Now, here we have said a few things about smartphones. I think that's true. Uh, when provided, just because everybody else has one, uh, before character and self-control is developed, this is a recipe for problems, and uh, some of my kids have admitted so with their kids. 
But if there is maturity there, yet uh, that little device is denied simply because of the possibility of evil influence, there may be outward compliance in the home, but the deprivation will result in an obsession for the forbidden fruit of the phone and a dependency when the young person figures out how to get around the deprivation, and they will, or at least when he or she becomes of age. For those born silver spoon in hand, money may create an obsession. Uh, but the curse, which is the curse of laziness. We know intuitively that uh, laziness is not a good thing. But did you know it's not biblical either? The Proverbs warn of the perils of the, the sluggard who flips on his bed like a door does on its hinges. Paul commanded a very simple and effective way to deal with this problem. He said, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. I suspect that was a fairly effective way to deal with the problem. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Uh, he continued, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So, uh, churches and church leaders must be careful in encouraging laziness, much like the government does when they use benevolence. It's important to help people, yes, but not to make them dependent upon you. There's a, there's a book that was mentioned this morning called When Helping Hurts, and it is a hard call to make sometimes. Church leaders have a special instruction due to the stewardship of gifts and donations. Both Paul and Peter caution leaders against seeking sordid gain in Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. You know, the balance to this is that elders who rule well and teach are to be given double honor or appropriate compensation. Now, we see abuses of this on going both ways. Pastors in small churches often end up doing most of the work with little compensation, necessitating moonlighting just to provide for their young families. On the other hand, in large or mega churches, especially those who teach a prosperity or health and wealth gospel, we often see something like a large corporate type pyramid uh, with those at the top making millions. Uh, this latter type brings not just unwarranted guilt upon those who are told that they lack faith if they're not healthy and wealthy, but it brings disgrace on the body of Christ that unbelievers will ultimately and inevitably mock. Now, please understand that making money, making a lot of money, is not wrong. Uh, in fact, if you think about this, just think about reality here. It is the successful business people who provide something called jobs. And they're much more able to help people. Uh, if we look at the United States as a nation, if there's, if there's young socialists listening online, think about this. You know, it's because of the economic system that we have in America that America is the most generous nation in the world. And the same thing is true on the business level. A good example of this 
There's a guy named R.J. Letourneau. I think Joe went to Letourneau. Dan went, to, okay, he went, one of the McElroys went there, uh, went to the university that they started, and he was a guy uh, who uh, developed these large earth-moving machines, and he made a fortune doing that. And his, res his resolve as a Christian was to tithe 10% to himself and give 90% for God's work. Uh, Paul did refuse to take money when necessary to avoid unbelievers from misinterpreting his motives. At other times, he accepted financial contributions freely and taught that the laborer is worthy of his wages. At Lion and Lamb, uh, Larry uh, is a full-time staff member as an elder and unselfishly receives just enough for his family. Uh, he's not here, so I'm going to say he even refused a raise for inflation in next year's budget. Mike elected to receive only what is designated by you for his support. Uh, we pay for necessary secretarial and janitorial work. Bob Hamilton watches every penny. We have accountability by other leaders, and because we wish to remain above reproach to you as well. All those things are open for your examination. So, got some suggestions on this first one of not being lovers of money. On a personal level, it's, it would be good to make a list of those things that are most important to you in your life. Try to be honest. What are your priorities according to your checkbook ledger? What we spend reflects where our heart is. Uh, you can review and use the passages that are on your handout to uh, set goals to avoid the love of money, laziness, and instead focus on giving to God and helping others in need. Moving right along, the next quality is managing your own household well. This would be, I think, the most demonstrative of Christian maturity among men. By that I mean that how a man manages his household is a test of how well he can handle greater responsibility, especially leading other Christians in the church. Paul asked rhetorically, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, we're going to try to discern what Paul means here by first examining what he does not mean. First, he's not saying that a man must have children to lead or even be married. There's no indication that Paul was married and he extolled the virtues of celibacy. But if a man does lead a household, including children, is it well ordered? A single man can be a church leader, but if he marries and subsequently does not manage his household well, he may very well be disqualified for leadership. Secondly, Paul says that a leader must have his children in submission, quote, with all dignity, 1 Timothy 3. And he also says that his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination in Titus 1. The point here is that Paul is not referring here to small children. Rather, the context indicates that, a household, that these household children in question here are capable of riotous and, impro and improper living. And we rarely associate the word dignity with little children. So a man may be recognized as a church leader, and then if a child in his household goes off the rails, he may very well be disqualified from leadership. 
Now, this issue gets a little more hazy, at least for me, when dealing with adult children who were once part of the household and now are out of the household. Uh, what if we start to engage, what if they start to engage in riotous or improper living? As some of you are aware, I have, had, I have some of my adult children who have had issues, have stumbled after leaving the home. And when questioned about becoming an elder at Lion and Lamb, I disclosed this problem. The consensus of the others was that absent a direct causal relationship that we can't be responsible for all the actions of our adult children. Therefore, I acquiesced and agreed to be recognized. And at this point, I personally cannot say there is a bright line. I'm speaking simply for myself here. But I believe that it is possible that the sins of a church leader's adult children out of the home could bring reproach, so much reproach on the body of Christ, which detract from the mission of the church and or he could lose respect and become ineffective as a leader and therefore may wish to step down. Now, this is why all of you need to keep your leaders accountable. The point of this quality is that good management of a man's household is something to which all men should aspire uh, who would not want to manage their household well. Also, Paul here is not referring to the occasional outbursts and misbehavior of little tykes, sometimes known as the terrible twos. We've seen some of that among our grandchildren. Uh, this, however, this means that fathers should not become too harsh with their young children for the sake of the father's reputation. We should all want all of our children to be good examples, but if the correction of their misdeeds is ever tied to our reputation so that the dad or the pastor will look good, resentment will follow. Uh, this also means that other church members should be slow to look down on the occasional misbehaviors seen in children in the church body. None of us have a perfect family, and children, by definition, are immature. Paul's also not talking here about a man who is successful in business or even who serves well within the church. Usually a man who manages his household well will also run his business well and even maybe do great work for the Lord. However, the reverse does not follow. He may be a great businessman or church worker, but his family may be a mess. He may be so obsessed with his business or even evangelism that his family is neglected. And if such a person is respected for their success or service by the church, it can lead to thoughts on the part of the wives and children who know him better than anybody else of hypocrisy, which in turn can lead the young to reject Christ. This has been a problem for some. Uh, some of you may have heard of a guy named Billy Sunday who was a great professional baseball player who became an evangelist. And he was out on the road evangelizing so much that his children were neglected and became a mess. A name that you might be more familiar with is a guy named Billy Graham, who you probably heard Franklin was a rebel. Uh, so, and then thankfully Franklin came, back, came around, but it happens to the most famous of church leaders and evangelists. But what does Paul mean here? Very simply, if a man manages his household well, he will be much more likely to be a good leader in the church. Not guaranteed, but much more likely. 
So if church leadership looks primarily to business success, social or professional standing or wealth for its future leadership candidates, those current leaders are barking up the wrong tree and are headed for disaster for both the church and that man's family. Uh, the very weakness in a family leader will cause him to be a weak church leader. And if he steps into the role of church leader, his own family, who are familiar with him and who know him well, will respect him even less, which will make his household even less stable. And let me just assure you that the people that are working toward church leadership in this church have none of those problems. They're all good businessmen, they're all, you know, have a lot of good qualities, but, uh, but those are the things that we have to be concerned about, uh, not looking at the, what the world looks like, looks at for success. Beyond the church leadership question, all Christian men should strive to be a good husband and father. We should all work toward a well-ordered household, and we studied, this involves leading and loving our wives as Christ loved the church that is, sacrificially. It involves living with our wives in an understanding way. That means being sensitive to her differences. Finally, she is to be honored as an equal fellow heir of the grace of life. This means she's not only your equal, but she submits to you, not out of compulsion, but, out of, but to your loving leadership out of a mutual love and submission to God. Now, as for fathering, we're, of course, we're not to provoke our children to wrath, and we're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We all know that. In addition, Paul, who only sired spiritual children to our knowledge, said, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own glory and kingdom. So Paul's explaining here that a father is not just to kind of rear up the family and be the head and let mom take care of the details, but he is to, each with each individual child in his family, exhort and encourage each one. So suggestions in this area to work on this. Understand that love and respect cannot be demanded or forced. It is earned. You might want to ask the person who knows you the best. Usually it's your wife, a few questions. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How can I be a better husband and father? Good thing to study for yourself the instructions on the attitude and actions necessary to be a biblical husband and father. The verses are on your sheet. And if you know that you have stumbled in a particular area, ask forgiveness of your wife and perhaps your children. Ask your wife, perhaps even a mature child, to help you set up specific goals to develop a well-ordered household. All right, the next quality is a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, this may seem like a repeat of the, I think the very first one we talked about, being above reproach, which, address, which we addressed two months ago. Uh, I said in that message that being above reproach is an overarching quality that will be earned by demonstrating all the other qualities. Uh, here, Paul gives special attention to our witness among unbelievers, and he exhorts 
numerous times how this is important, he and others. Uh, we are urged to aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with our hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not burden or be dependent on anyone. Uh, these verses are all in your handout. Uh, we're to conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, always speaking with grace, seasoned with salt. We are to do all things for God's glory, giving no offense to, in our conduct to unbelievers, to seek their profit over our own so that they may be sa saved. Uh, Peter tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God. So it's clear that a good reputation is vital not just for church leaders, but for all in the body of Christ. So suggestions in this area. Determine how you're doing by measuring your life next to the word of God. Do I do everything without grumbling and disputing? Am I running my business or serving as an employee in a manner that is above reproach? Do I communicate with unbelievers with grace and in an attractive, winsome way, seasoned with salt? Pause here. What does salt do to food? It makes it more attractive, doesn't it? You want to eat it when you've got some salt on it. So what might be the salt of our testimony and our witness and our communication with others. I'm going to suggest to, do, to you that at least one of them is humor, okay? Laughter attracts. So don't be a dour-faced believer. That's, what they, that's how the world looks at you. You want to counteract that connotation. Uh, do I set a good example in my social life before non-Christians? We talked about that with uh, not being addicted to wine. Uh, Am I acting like a slave of Christ by showing respect for unbelieving employers or employees? And do I respond in a Christ-like manner when falsely accused by unbelievers? So, if there's any area, any failure in these areas, uh, we should take action to settle accounts, uh, first with God by confession and then with the offended unbelievers. Repent and strive to change. All right, the next one, love what is good. Well, duh, all right? Who shouldn't? Until that is, you see what the word means by this phrase. In short, to love what is good is a process of maturation, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. No, none of us will ever love just like Jesus or even love the good perfectly. But that is true of all these qualities. We are never going to master them all perfectly or any of them perfectly. But these are the things to which we're called. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works. Now, it's this latter part about walking in them that is so hard. It starts with a commitment. Paul appeals to us, by the mercy of God, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A sacrifice is a commitment. We're not to be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of our minds 
that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, this is an act of the will. Therefore, to love what is good requires that we first love God, the author of all good, and that we desire to do His will, His good. In order to do His good, we must also understand what it is. Therefore, we must study and learn what that entails. In other words, read your Bible. Okay, Paul exhorted his son Timothy to continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, beyond loving, desiring, and knowing the good, we must actually do it. Paul prayed earnestly that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay, suggestions in this area. First, accept that loving what is good is much more than good thoughts, than good feelings. It is action. All Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is not salvation. We're talking about rewards here, or lack thereof. So, secondly, evaluate based upon the word whether you recognize and take advantage of the opportunities that you have to do good, not just to Christians, but to non-Christians. Do you tear others down, or do you build them up? Uh, uh, Do you use what God has blessed you with to bless others? Do you have a good conscience about how you treat others? Have you thrown off pride, jealousy, and selfishness in order to foster unity in the body of Christ? Have you committed self to Christ as a living sacrifice, which is a once-for-all event, and renewal of your mind, which is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus? Have you trusted to allow God to do His part to equip you for every good work and to perfect it until the return of Christ. The next word, the next quality is the simple word just. Uh, And the last two qualities of just and devout are actually linked. Now, we use these words often so that they kind of become Christianese, okay, without much thought for meaning. It's a good to take a look at, try to discern what the Bible actually calls us to be. The word in Titus translated just in Greek is used differently in different contexts. Uh, there's reference to the just and the unjust uh, to signify the saved and the lost in Acts 24 uh, and Matthew 9. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the just shall live by faith, referring to how a sinner by faith is made righteous in God's sight. This is sometimes called positional righteousness, your position before God. The word also uses the term to refer to practical righteousness, which means living a godly and righteous life. 
So some examples would be Joseph, you know, Jesus' adoptive dad, Cornelius, the Roman centurion who was told to, uh, to call on Peter uh, in Acts 10, and John the Baptist. Uh, the word just certainly includes how we conduct our lives, but there's a more specific application. Uh, being just is related to our earlier discussion about being prudent, in which we emphasize the practical qualities of being sober-minded, sensible, of sound mind, judgment, and finally, humble. All this points to a man making mature and proper judgments in relation to others in order to be just. A negative example would be the men of the church of first century Corinth. Paul excoriated those men who took their conflicts into the courts before unbelieving judges. He said, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You know, uh, it's interesting that we never hear about elders in the Corinthian church, and it may be because none were qualified to serve there. Because of their immaturity, Paul called them people of the flesh as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were simply not ready. Solomon is an example of a man who started well but ended poorly. He loved the Lord, so when God appeared to him in a dream and asked what he wanted, Solomon requested an understanding mind to govern your people so that I may discern between good and evil. And that pleased the Lord that Solomon had not asked for long life or riches, instead understanding to discern what is right. God gave him a wise and discerning mind so that none like you uh, has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor, so that, you know, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And he took this charge seriously. And he amazed, amazed not just his own subjects, but the surrounding nations who stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. In 1 Kings 3, Sadly, Solomon compromised, entered into great sin, and suffered the consequences. And Paul was keenly aware of the temptations that led to the fall of Solomon. He knew this not only for himself, but for all men, especially when men take leadership of any kind. Paul encouraged self-control and discipline to keep the body under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul then reminded that anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Pride comes before a fall. He then encourages us to withstand. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But, the, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, a great example of not only starting but finishing well was a guy named Daniel. He had less than ideal circumstances starting as a young man captive in Babylon. And his captor king found Daniel and his cohorts ten times better than his own magicians in wisdom and understanding. And the reason for this is that Daniel resolved, he made up his mind that he would only serve the God Almighty. Unlike Solomon, 
who was in charge and determined his own culture. Daniel was in a a hostile society uh, to his faith, yet he did not bend to the temptations to go along with the culture. Even when a devious plot was hatched to stop his open worship, he remained faithful to God. Daniel took on the attitude that we all should emulate if it is our goal to be just, righteous, and holy. He performed his duties well without compromise and remained faithful, come what may. Now, how do we become just or mature? There's at least a couple of areas in which maturity can be developed. There's spiritual but also emotional maturity that are vital for Christian men. It's quite interesting that non-Christians can have one without the other. We all know people who, or we have used the services of those who exhibit emotional or psychological maturity, wisdom, and discerning judgment in their area of expertise. Maybe a businessman, a tradesman, or a professional. Yet, as far as we can tell, there's no hint of spiritual maturity and they may make it very clear that they don't, they're not Christians, they don't even believe in the God of the Bible. I've been in front of some judges like that, very wise, but no hint of spiritual maturity. In fact, Ezekiel 28 recounts that the prince of Tyre was such a man, so proud that he considered himself God, yet the Bible says he was, quote, indeed wiser than Daniel. Despite that wisdom, his wealth, pride, and self-worship brought himself into judgment. In Luke 18, Jesus points out God's justice by the example of the unrighteous judge from whom a widow persistently sought justice. And the judge finally said, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. On the other hand, we may mistakenly assume that a brother is spiritually mature simply because that person has a relationship, fellowship with God, or there's no open and conspicuous sin in his life. However, he may lack both spiritual and emotional maturity. A man can never be a mature church leader without both emotional and spiritual maturity, and one cannot have spiritual maturity without emotional maturity. So how do we see this in other believers? Uh, as we're using the term here. Well, I would suggest by the witness of the other qualities listed by Paul. Now, some of those uh, relate to emotional maturity, being temperate, prudent, able to teach, gentle, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not pugnacious, not contentious. But a Christian leader must also have more than emotional maturity. He must be above reproach with those within and without the church, the husband of one wife, not given to wine, free from the love of money, Love what is good. And our last one, give out. Suggestions for dealing with being just. Evaluate your level of maturity by an inventory of the other qualities and work on weak areas. You know, one who knows their Bible but is insecure or lacks confidence will make poor decisions because people who are easily threatened will usually become emotional, which will affect their reasoning. Watch other men you consider wise and learn from their successes and their failures. Seek counsel from mature men to test your judgments. 
where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Admit when you've made a poor decision. Do whatever's necessary to correct it. Learn from that mistake and move on. Do not allow your stumbling to defeat you. Get back up. Paul says in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. All right. Our final quality is devout. Okay, I want to take a personal in-the-mind survey here. When you saw that on the handout, or I just said it, how many of you, or did you think, don't raise your hand, did you think at least mentally to roll your eyes? Devout. Okay? Uh, the King James actually uses the word holy. I want to ask, I've only got Mark here. Mike and, and, and uh, Larry are gone. But I wanted to ask the elders and the deacons here. If somebody attending here were to come up to you and say, I think you're so devout, such a holy leader, what would you say? Well, with me, you'd probably say, no, Christ, not me. Right? And in one sense, that's absolutely true. But why would we react so emphatically? What's going on here? I think it's because we are so conditioned by our culture that looks at those words devout and holy as something that it's not. Whenever those words are attached to people, images of a high priest with a long robe and a pointy hat and his hands just so or like this, looking with a dour face up, come to mind, doesn't it? In other words, ridicule is fast approaching, coming in fast. And somebody says, ooh, aren't you Mr. Self-Righteous? And we're aware that self-righteousness is a thing. We know how Jesus terror, uh, ter tore the scribes and Pharisees apart, his whitewashed tombstones, and outwardly appear righteous to others, but within full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we take great pains to avoid ever being tied to those labels. But yet, yet, there it is. The Bible says that leaders are to be, and all are to strive to be, devout or holy. So how do we handle this? Let's take a step back from our emotional reaction here. We've discussed in the past the difference between connotation and denotation. Connotation is the meaning attached to a word based upon implication and shared emotional association with the word. So it's subjective and it's kind of how people feel about a particular word, the meaning. Denotation is objective. It's what the word is actually intended to mean. So we might say that for some, devout and holy has a negative connotation. However, is it is there really anything wrong with being genuinely devout or holy with humility? 
We need to get past any emotional aversion to these words and actually make them our goal. There are two distinct words translated holy in the word of God. One refers to positional holiness, like the Old Testament uh, refers to the children of Israel as being a holy nation, being a nation set apart for God. And clearly, Israel was not always that, but holiness continued to be imputed to God's chosen. In Titus 1, Paul is referring to practical holiness, a different original word. And this is not imputed holiness, rather it's an attitude of holiness developed, worked out, and observable in our behavior. In other words, it's the process of becoming more and more like Christ. This word for practical holiness is used in Hebrews to describe Christ himself as a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, we've got to pause here. Some Christians are confused and have misapplied the concept of being separated from sinners as meaning to withdraw and avoid any contact with sinners in order to be holy. No doubt adding to the negative connotation of the world. Uh, now, that is really just isolation. It's not uh, the teaching of Jesus. He frequently associated with sinners and the hated tax collectors. When the Pharisees confronted him, Jesus responded, those who are well need no physician but those who are sick. Uh, now, in the Marine Corps, we would often say about communication, which is an important thing, that if it can be misunderstood, it will be. So, Paul experienced this very problem. Paul wanted the church in Corinth to understand that they should not associate with people who claim to be Christians, but who continue to live sinful and unholy lives. But he had to clarify. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now Jesus instructed us all to be salt of the earth. Hard to be salty if you're never taken off the shelf and put on the food. We're to be light of the world. Light doesn't do much if it's under a basket. So how else will sinners see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? And finally, Paul was, himself was not afraid of these labels. He wrote to remind Thessalonian believers about his labor to proclaim the gospel to them. He said, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul's life reflected the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He knew that this was so important for men that he told the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Okay. So to wrap up this message and this series, I hope that the title and the emphasis on men has not left some out in the cold. My intent has been since January to highlight something that God's word says is vital to the culture and the church. And I hope all those who are not adult men see the application to their lives, even single widows. 
all of you should strive for these godly qualities yourselves. But please also support, exhort, and encourage men to fulfill the call of God on them. Yeah. Men got special attention and scrutiny during this series, not because they're more important, but because God gave them a distinct role in the church, that of leadership. Men do not naturally, however, understand how to lead, tending often either to harshness or passivity. So I also hope you have recognized how devastating the failure of men to lead well or not at all in our culture, particularly is damaging to women and children. In the Marine Corps, we use the typical soft and sensitive verbiage that we're known for. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. Uh, As the worship team comes up, I'm going to give them a little extra time here because our passage is pretty short. All Christians are followers in the sense that we all follow Christ. Yet, Christian men are also called to lead. Some in church or ministry, most in marriage and families, but all by the example we are to display of imitating Christ. Uh, Now, go ahead and put that last uh, thing up there. Ladies, uh, you may not... Do you have it? Oh, I just don't see it back there. Okay. <laughs> you may feel uncomfortable telling your guys to act like men, but don't worry. You don't have to. Paul did. So would you rise and recite this with me to kind of wrap up this whole series and, and uh, encourage each one of these men. Ready? Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love.